So just come on out, bring, it, bring a friend, bring a snack. Let's have a great time of worship tonight as Jamie shares that and other songs that he's written tonight. And uh, just a wonderful time, too, of fellowship. Plan on sticking around and, and getting to know one another. And speaking of fellowship, let's stand up and do that for a minute. Say hi to those around you this morning. Please be seated. Take out your Bibles with me. And as you do that, let's, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your tremendous, amazing grace, your love, your mercy, your blessing, Lord. Lord, as we just heard in the song, Lord, your love your love that is, that is so amazing. It's what carries us on. It's what gets us through. Lord, we know that we who have been redeemed by you, those who call you Lord and Savior and King, Lord, we can rely on you for everything. Your name is I Am. Lord, we know that you are everything that we need. And Lord, today we ask that you would meet each of us right where we are. Lord, you know the individual circumstances. You know the situations that we all face. And Lord, while it is a blessing to gather here together corporately, openly, and freely, Lord, it is also a blessing to know that you desire to do an individual work in us. So, Lord, have your way as we study your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. If you don't have a Bible, please grab one from under a seat in front of you there. Acts chapter 6 is where we are today. We started Acts chapter 6 last week looking at the fact the church had grown to the point where the apostles could no longer handle everything. Their primary responsibility and goal was to study the scriptures, to share the word of God with those that were, as the church as it was growing, to be praying and the administrative things, the details that were, were needed to be done, they were not able to keep on top of all of it. And so they, they assigned seven men to be, if you would, deacons, the first deacons in the church overseeing the administration of, of things. And we were introduced to them by name in verse 5. And one of them we are going to look at today, his name is Stephen. It tells us in verse 5 of chapter 6 that Stephen was a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. In verse 8, we continue today, and Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. But some men from what was called the synagogue of the freedmen, including Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and some from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and argued with Stephen. But they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. It's interesting when you talk to people and, and, and engage with people about what, it, what constitutes a full life, you'll get a whole myriad of different answers. But one thing that's, that's for certain that in, inside of everyone is that's a desire, that we want to live life to its fullest, however we might define that, to have a full life. In the world, 
defines a full life very differently than God does. The world defines a full life. We even defined it in, you know, in a way that we wanted to have a country here when it was first founded where everyone could do that. You know, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, whatever that might be. And that's, that was one of the founding things of even our, our country. And the world measures fullness by, by what you do as an occupation, to get to the highest point you could, climbing the corporate ladder, if you would, or, or power, how much power you have, how many people report to you, what you might possess, what you hold on to, what you can accumulate. That is what constitutes a full life in the eyes of the world. You've heard the saying, he who dies with the most toys wins. That's really quite stupid. <laughs> That, that, that he who dies with the most toys dies and leaves all of his toys to someone else. Takes nothing with him. As a matter of fact, the one who actually did die with the most toys, Solomon wrote this. Ecclesiastes 12.8, vanity of vanity, says the preacher, all is vanity. He had everything. He had more money and toys than anyone ever in the history of the world. He had more power. He had everything. He chased all of the pursuits that, 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 that the world has to offer. And at the end of it all, he said, it's all meaningless. It's all worthless. He goes on to say this. The conclusion, when all has been heard, is fear God and keep his commandments, because this applies to every person. Fear God. Have a reverence for God and obey his commandments. Do what he says. Solomon, the wisest man, the richest man, that was his conclusion at the end of it all, recorded for us in the Word of God. Do you want a full life? Do you want to have life to its fullest? You pour that life out, your life out, and you allow the Lord to pour in whatever it is that He desires for you. To the fullest. That word full that we're going to see right now, we're going to look at a man who had a full life. Because it tells us right here, you look at it again, verse 3, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. Verse 8, a man full of grace and power. And we see in verse 10, wisdom and the Spirit, full. <laughs> that word full, the Greek word full, is the same word meaning that we have in English for full. It means containing within itself all that it will hold. There's no room for anything else. And again, you want a, a full life? It's a life full of the Holy Spirit. It's a life sold out and poured out for God. It tells us that, that Stephen was performing great wonders and signs, but that's just a quick mention. It goes on then to speak of the things that he was saying, the word that he had, filled with the Spirit of God, filled with the Word of God. Peter says in 1 Peter, he speaks of the fact that, he says, we don't come speaking to you about fables and fairy tales. As a matter of fact, he says, I was an eyewitness. I saw Jesus in all of his glory on the Mount of Transfiguration. I was there. I witnessed it. But he goes on to say this. He said, but we have the prophetic word more sure. More sure, more certain than what he witnessed on the Mount of Transfiguration, seeing Jesus in his glory there. He said, the word of God trumps that. The word that you hold in your hand. And that's important because I wasn't at the Mount of Transfiguration and neither were you. But neither was Stephen. 
Stephen wasn't there. He didn't witness that. Yet now he is full of the Holy Spirit, full of the Word of God. Again, a life poured out, a life sold out, filled with the Holy Spirit, engaging these men in the synagogue of, what it says here, the synagogue of the freedmen. It's a synagogue that, was, that had men that were attending there that were formerly slaves, now attending this synagogue, and it's outlined for us where these men originated from, Cyrene, Alexandria, Asia, and note Cilicia. Cilicia, interesting, because the capital of Cilicia was a place called Tarsus. And who do we know from Tarsus? Saul. No doubt Saul hung out at the synagogue of the freedmen. No doubt Saul was engaged at least partially with this discussion with, with, with uh, Stephen. If he wasn't there at every one of them, I got a feeling that as Stephen was engaging with them and these, these other guys that are in the synagogue are finding themselves no match for Stephen, they said, man, somebody go get Saul. Saul, from, from the school of Gamaliel, we talked about that last week, the Pharisee of Pharisees, known for his wisdom and, and all that. Go get Saul. And it's interesting as we, as we will see in a moment, the, 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 the charges that are brought against Stephen, it says that he's speaking against the temple, that he's speaking against the things that Moses brought to us, and that's not true. No doubt Stephen was expounding on the, the ancient scriptures, no doubt expounding on what we call the Old Testament, that talking about the feasts and the festivals that, yes, were handed down from Moses to the people. But Stephen's saying, guys, understand this, Jesus fulfills it all. He, t t the, the, the festival of tabernacles and first fruits and those things, Jesus fulfilled it, Passover. Guys, you're not going to believe this, but this is, it all pointed to Jesus. And the temple, the things that are in the temple, the, the, the lampstand, Jesus is the light of the world. That pointed to him all the way back then. That's what, that's what it was all intended for, the showbread, Jesus, the bread of life. And, and they're, they're, they're bringing their arguments against this and, and the whole time, and he's trumping them, besting them at every corner. What about this? He goes, oh man, I'm glad you brought that up because Jesus fulfilled that too. And just continuing on with that, their accusation is going to be that, again, Jesus came to destroy all of this. Jesus, in his own words, says, I didn't come to destroy a single part of it. I came to fulfill it all. And it's interesting that Saul would later become Paul, and he would later write to the church in Colossae, Therefore, let no one act as your judge in regard to food or drink, or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Upset, angry, no doubt, as, they, as we're going to see their reaction and what they do in a moment, and one of the things that we need to take away from this real quickly is, again, as we are obedient and we are sharing our faith and we are sharing the word of God with others, we, as we talk often, will be met with resistance, will be met with anger, will be met with, quite often, a lot of the things that we're going to even see coming up and, and talking behind us and false accusations and all those kind of things. Guys, we, our role, we can never lose sight of the fact that we can get discouraged when we share with someone over and over again and they don't accept the Lord. We need to understand our role and God's role. Our role is to bring Jesus to men. God's role is to bring men to Jesus. 
we need to simply share what we have, what we know, this truth, this hope that we have, and let God do the rest. Again, enraged, it tells us if Saul is there, no doubt he's probably the most upset because it tells us that, he, that, that they, they were unable to cope with. They were no match for this, this unlearned Stephen. And no doubt, again, getting so frustrated. Again, if Saul, Saul is there, this man who had studied under Gamaliel, this respected man, this one with all of this knowledge and respect and probably a very wealthy person would later write to the church in Philippi, all of that, all of that fame, all of that stuff, all that I used to count so, so high, I count it as garbage today compared to knowing Christ as my Lord. Well, we see where they go with this next, upset, angry with him. It says, then they secretly induced men to say, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came up to him and dragged him away and brought him before the council. The same council, the Sanhedrin, that Jesus was brought before and the apostles have been, we've seen in the previous chapters. Now Stephen standing before them, they put forward false witnesses who say, this man incessantly speaks against this holy place and the law, for we have heard him say that this Nazarene Jesus will destroy this place and alter the customs which Moses handed down to us. And fixing their gaze on him, all who were sitting in the council saw his face like the face of an angel. <laughs> Stirring up, inducing these men, literally they hired people, they bribed them to make up false accusations against Stephen and to bring those false accusations against him. And then now he is drug away to stand before the Sanhedrin, the council. And it tells us that as these charges are being brought, false charges, twisted words, taking, taking even truth and turning it around to make, it look, make him look to be something that he's not, it tells us that when they looked at him, his face was like an angel. He, he was glowing, again, filled with the Holy Spirit, filled with grace, filled with wisdom, filled with the absolute assurance that Jesus is his Lord, and Jesus has everything under control, and if Jesus is Lord of his life, Jesus can do whatever he wants with him, and he's okay with the end result. He knows that Jesus will never leave him or forsake him, and he's there in the midst of it shining like an angel. Let me ask, when people speak bad things about you, when they gossip about you, when they say false things about you, when they get a whole bunch of people together and talk about you and say negative things about you, do you have a face like an angel? Or do you have a face that has a distorted angle? Again, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, totally trusting the Lord in all of this, and just beaming. Peter would later write, but even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. 
Do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. Long before Peter wrote that, Stephen lived it. Stephen modeled it for us. Sanctify Christ as Lord of your heart. Sanctify, set apart him and him alone as Lord of your life, as Lord in your heart. Stephen obviously had done that. Again, Lord, wherever you go, I will, wherever you lead, I will willingly go. Wherever you direct and send me, I will follow in that direction, and I will trust you along the way. There's no other way that Stephen could be acting this way unless he had sanctified Jesus as Lord of his life. Always being ready to make a defense, to share what it is that is inside, the hope that we have. Stephen, I know, couldn't, couldn't wait to share the gospel, couldn't wait to tell others about the hope that was in him. But notice, with gentleness and reverence, in spite of all of the opposition that is coming to him, he remained gentle and reverent. And guys, if we don't, if we allow our flesh to step up and we get, we get angry and we start fighting back, it has the opposite effect. People notice difference in us, this face shining like an angel. The reason that that's noted so clearly in this is because it's so different than every other reaction from people. And he stood out that way. In chapter 7, it says, The high priest said, Are these things so? These accusations that have been made against you. And beginning with verse 2 in chapter 7, we have the longest sermon recorded for us in the book of Acts. And since it's embedded in the middle of my sermon, well, we, I'll try to get you out by two. But <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> I want to read through... Stephen's message that he had for the Sanhedrin, for the council, I'd like you to follow along with me. I'll make a few brief comments as we go, but when we get to the end, we'll talk, we'll talk about it. But he begins in chapter, chapter 7, verse 2. He says, Hear me, brethren and fathers. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him, Leave your country and your relatives and come into the land that I will show you. Then he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. From there, after his father died, God had him moved to this country in which you are now living. But he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot of ground. And yet, even when he had no child, he promised that he would give it to him as a possession and to his descendants after him. But God spoke to this effect, that his descendants would be aliens in a foreign land, and that they would be enslaved and mistreated for 400 years. And whatever nation to which they will be in bondage, I myself will judge, said God, and after that they will come out and serve me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision, and so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob of the 12 patriarchs. The 12 patriarchs, the 12 fathers, if you would, 
of the children of Israel. So he starts off with a, with a very brief, brief history. Abraham, the father of the Jewish people, through, through his sons to the descendants, the 12 tribes now of Israel. And he's going to refer to that, the patriarchs and the fathers going forward, the 12 sons of Jacob. The patriarchs became jealous of Joseph and sold him into Egypt, yet God was with him and rescued him from all his afflictions and granted him favor and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he made him governor over Egypt and all his household. Now a famine came over all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction with it, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our fathers there the first time. On the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family was disclosed to Pharaoh. When Joseph sent word and invited Jacob, his father, and all his relatives to come to him, 75 persons in all, and Jacob went down to Egypt, and there he, had our, and, there he and our fathers died. From there they were removed to Shechem and laid in a tomb which Abraham had purchased for a sum of money from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. But as the time of the promise was approaching, which God had assured to Abraham the 400 years, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose another king over Egypt who knew nothing about Joseph. It was he who took shrewd advantage of our race and mistreated our fathers so that they would expose their infants and they would not survive. It was at this time that Moses was born. And he was lovely in the sight of God. He was nurtured three months in, the Pharaoh's, in his father's house. And after he had been set outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and nurtured him as her own son. Moses was educated in all the learning of the Egyptians, and he was a man of power in words and deeds. But when he was approaching the age of 40, it entered, it, it entered his mind to visit his brethren, the sons of Israel. And when he saw one of them being treated unjustly, he defended him and took vengeance for the oppressed by striking down the Egyptian. Verse 25, and he supposed that his brethren understood that God was granting them deliverance through him, but they did not understand. On the following day, he appeared to them as they were fighting together, and he tried to reconcile them in peace, saying, Men, you are brethren. Why do you injure one another? But the one who was injuring his neighbor pushed him away, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge over us? You do not mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday, do you? At this remark, Moses fled and became an alien in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. After 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in the flame of the burning thorn bush. When Moses saw it, he marveled at the sight as he approached to look more closely. There came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses shook with fear and would not venture to look. But the Lord said to him, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. I have certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt and have heard their groans, and I have come down to rescue them. Come now, and I will send you to Egypt. Verse 35. This Moses, whom they disowned, saying, Who made you ruler and judge, is the one whom God sent to be both ruler and deliverer, with the help of the angel who appeared to him in the thornbush. 
This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the, and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. Verse 37, this is the Moses. This man, Moses, is the one who said to the sons of Israel, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness together with the angel who was speaking to him on Mount Sinai and who was with our fathers and he received living oracles to pass on to you. Verse 39, our fathers were unwilling to be obedient to him but repudiated him in their hearts and turned back to, to turn in their hearts to turn back to Egypt saying to Aaron make for us gods who will go before us for this Moses who led us out of the land of Egypt we do not know what happened to him at that time they made a calf and brought a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands but God turned away and delivered them up to serve the host of heaven as it was written in the book of the prophets, it was not to me that you offered victims and sacrifices 40 years in the wilderness, was it, O house of Israel? You also took along the tabernacle of Molech. Molech was the detestable god of the, of the people that were there before them, the one they offered child sacrifices to. And the star of the god of Ramphe, the images which you made to worship. I also will remove you beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tabernacle of testimony in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern which he had seen. And having received it in their turn, our fathers brought it in with Joshua upon disposing the nations whom God drove out before our fathers until the time of David. David found favor in God's sight and asked that he might find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob, but it was Solomon who built a house for him. However, the Most High does not dwell in houses made by human hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne, and earth is my foot, the footstool of my feet. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what place is there for my repose? Was it not my hand which made all things? Stephen recounts the history, again, of the children of Israel. And I don't want to ask for a show of hands. I don't want to make anyone feel guilty, but perhaps you were thinking, are you seriously going to read that whole thing? <laughs> I mean, we do know the history. I mean, for those of us who are, you know, read the Bible and study the Bible, we know all that. You read all the way through it? I find it interesting that no one interrupted Stephen as he was sharing that. He's sharing that with 70 of the most learned men in all of Israel. They knew the history better than anybody. And nobody interrupted him. Nobody said, Stephen, would you just get to your point? Because I believe the Holy Spirit was pressing on every heart present. Just as he presses on every heart always when the gospel and the truth is presented. And Stephen, believe it or not, was making a point from the first word he said all the way through to where we are now. The point is going to get real sharp in a second. He's going to say in verse 51, 
you men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. Again, it gets real sharp here. Stiff-necked, stubborn. You've heard the truth over and over and over again, yet you will not bend. You will not bow. Uncircumcised in heart, you do all these outward rituals, but missing the whole point behind it. It's not an outward ritual that circumcision represents. It represents an inward thing, the circumcision of the heart. You miss the fact that it's to signify the cutting away of the flesh, a new heart, and resisting the Holy Spirit. And again, no doubt, Holy Spirit pressing on everyone there. And then he said, you're just like our fathers. And that gets to the point of what he was saying through the first 50 or so verses that we just looked at. Just like our fathers, who when Joseph was, had God with him, his brothers became jealous. And when Jesus came and was revealed to you, you guys became jealous. It was a jealousy thing in your heart. It was a pride thing that you refused to, to let go of. Joseph, a beautiful picture here that, that, that Stephen is laying out for us, a picture of Jesus and them, the picture of, of their fathers and the rejection of that. And I think, that's pretty cool, the, the prophecy that's even embedded in here. Note, if you notice, if you, if you heard, it says the second visit is when they recognized him. Speaking of that event yet to come, when Jesus comes again, his second coming, and it tells us that, that the Jewish people will then look upon him and understand that he is the Messiah. They will look upon him whom they have pierced. He goes on to, again, draw the parallels then between Moses now and when he was revealed and sent as their deliverer. They did not recognize him. They rejected him. He's saying, you are just like your fathers, always resisting the Holy Spirit. Verse 52, which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, the coming of Jesus. They killed him when they pronounced it, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You who received the law as ordained by angels, yet did not keep it. I have no doubt that everyone present knew exactly what Stephen was talking about. The Holy Spirit pressing upon them. And again, just as we talk all the time, that leaves the choice for every individual. I can accept the truth and humble myself. Or I can stiffen my neck, harden my heart. And that's what happens, unfortunately, to every one of those that are present. Look at what it says here in verse 54. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the quick and they began gnashing their teeth at him. We're going to see in a couple of verses that, that Saul is there when Stephen is being stoned. And later on when Jesus meets Saul on the road to Damascus, Jesus says to him, isn't it hard kicking against the goads, Saul? Isn't it hard to continually have all of this brought to you and you know it's the truth inside of you yet you push against it and you fight against it and you resist it isn't that hard they harden their hearts they 
set in their hearts now, even being cut to their very hearts, to do away with Stephen, verse 55, but being full of the Holy Spirit. There it is again. He gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and covered their ears and rushed at him with one impulse. When they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. And the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. They went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And having said this, he fell asleep. That phrase, fell asleep, is common in the New Testament to mean he died. We see this violent reaction to the truth as it is presented to these, the Sanhedrin, drags Stephen outside of town and st begins stoning him to death. I think it's, again, what, a, what an amazing thing to see, again, Stephen's reaction through it all. After the initial reaction, after the initial response that they have, he looks up to heaven. And what does he see? He sees Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. And that's important, guys, because the Bible tells us that Jesus, after he completed his work, he did all that he was sent here to do, he suffered and died in our place. He said, it is finished, paid in full. Everything has been done. It's completed. He died. He rose again. He ascended to heaven, and it tells us he is seated at the right hand of God. It's important to note he's seated because the work is done. There's nothing more to be done. But here we see when one of his own needs him, when one of his own who, is, who has made him Lord, who is following the path that is laid before him, who is being obedient as he is being led, he looks to heaven and what does he see? Jesus standing. Standing. He's about to go through something that in his own, and he cannot carry this alone. He's, he's, he's picked up this cross, and he's saying, Jesus, I will follow wherever this leads. And he's getting to that point where it's going to get really, really tough. And he looks up, and what does he see? He sees the one who has everything for him, everything he needs to get through what it is that he's going to go through. It tells us that he, he cries out to the Lord. And notice what he cries. He doesn't say, God, save me from this. Get me out of this somehow. He said, Lord, receive me. And then he said, before I take my last breath, forgive them. Forgive them. In order for Stephen to ask God to forgive them, that means first in his own heart he forgave them those that were throwing the stones at him to kill him, he said, God, forgive them. And no doubt, his face still glowing. We don't know, we don't know a lot about Stephen other than what we've just read. We don't know his occupation. We don't know 
you know, how much money he had. We don't know how famous anything he was. What we do know is that he was willing to be a, to be a servant in the church. We do know that he was obedient in, in sharing his faith. We do know that he was a man full of the Holy Spirit. We do know that he was a man full of wisdom and power and grace demonstrated for us here. And we do know that he died, that he was, that he was killed this way. Do we look at that and say, man, what a waste? Do you think that Stephen got up to heaven and said, Jesus, what's the deal? I mean, I was doing everything that you asked me to do. I think I went above and beyond what I think most people would have done, and this is what I, this is what I get? How many think that's his reaction? <laughs> Anybody think he had any regrets? I don't. 